what you need to do is be overflowing with the positive emotions of love or connection that you, you don't need it to come back from others. So it just flows out of you because it's who you are. Getting in touch with those, you know, the, your pure self, your true self, your inner child parts that are holding all of this love and not being afraid of, of just letting it out, to be okay with having that go forth. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello and welcome, fellow human. Welcome to another episode of Humans in Love. Thank you for making some time for me today. It's always cool when I get notes from um, from listeners talking about exactly where they are and what they're doing when they're listening to episodes, because I'm a big podcast junkie, and it's cool to think about people listening to mine on planes and in buses and stuck at the in line at the bank or whatever. So, yeah, it don't uh, don't ever be afraid to to reach out and send me an email, uh, Zachary at zfstockhill.com. I absolutely love hearing from you guys, and it's uh, it's really great to connect one on one like that. So, never be shy to uh, to let me know what you think of the podcast and send me an email. I have a really good one for you today. My guest is Mr. David Tian. David is an author, a coach, a workshop leader, currently based in Taiwan, but he's lived all over Asia and North America. I've been following David's work for some time now, and it's been really, really fascinating to to sort of watch his transition from a quote-unquote pickup guru, you know, a guy who um, basically instructs men, you know, how to pick up girls in bars and clubs and meet women during the day and things like that. Watching him transition from that to what he's doing today, which is much more sort of holistic personal development work around psychology, and he incorporates a lot of themes from Asian philosophy, which I found particularly interesting. He also uh, has a great deal of insight to offer with regard to long-term relationships things like marriage, making real connections with people, and in particular, maintaining the passion in long-term relationships, which is a real issue, I know, for a lot of men and women out there. In today's episode of Humans in Love, David and I talk about all kinds of things. We talk about his journey uh, from being a philosophy professor and turning into a dating coach, some dark days uh, that he experienced in the pickup artistry world, uh, his experience with dating and relationships, relationship and dating advice for men, the red pill, the men's online subculture, how he decided to get married, and much, much more. So I hope you stick around and listen to my interview with David Tian. Before we get started, a quick reminder that if you dig the show and you'd like me to keep doing it, please be sure to leave a rating and review uh, as a motorcycle speeds away outside my window. (laughs) Please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. It's the best way to uh, inspire me to keep the show going and to let others know. So please take 30 seconds out of your day, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, here's my interview with Mr. David Tian. Okay, well, first off, David, uh, it's awesome to talk to you today. I've been following your work for a while. Uh, welcome to the podcast, and, and thanks for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I know you've told this story probably a hundred times before, but I 
as a, as someone else who uh, managed to kind of escape the academy and uh, pursue a radically different path in life, tell me about how you become uh, a dating coach. You know, how, how do you go from being an academic, being a professor to becoming a dating coach? I find that really interesting. And like, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Uh, now over 15 years ago, about 16 years ago, I was coming out of uh, a separation uh, and then divorce with my wife at the time and had no clue what I was doing in dating. And I was a grad student then, just starting my PhD. Uh, well, actually I was in the middle of my PhD program at that time. And I was a real big nerd and geek and an argumentative one. I was a, a philosopher and that was very anti-seductive. So coming out <laughs> around almost 30 years old, going out to the single scene again, I just realized, I guess, how awful it was. <clears throat> so. Uh, at that time, the book by Neil Strauss had just come out. The game. That, that fall. The game. And I was lucky that in my class on Buddhism, I was teaching a, an intro to Buddhism, there was a student who uh, was the business manager and coach for one of the largest dating skills companies in the world at the time, Wayne Elise's company, uh, Charisma Arts, I think they called it back then. And I got to know him really well and the coaches there. And that just started me on that uh, rabbit hole pickup and uh, becoming uh, a pickup uh, artist, I guess you'd say. Like a, a, and then eventually starting a blog around what I was doing, just sort of more as a diary for myself, just to keep records of learning various skill sets and conversation and whatnot. <clears throat> and then that morphed into uh, a, a practice as a coach. Other guys asking me for advice and then wanting me to take them out and all that. And I was doing this as I was finishing off my PhD. <clears throat> and then when I got my PhD, I became a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the National University of Singapore. And by that point, I kind of cracked the code on academics. So it was hardly, I, I didn't have to spend much time on it. Uh, I had, co had colleagues who would st spend until 10 p.m. in their offices doing God knows what. But uh, I got all my work done in a very condensed amount of time. And then I was out to the bars and the clubs and uh, dating and just having a flourishing social life. So I had a, um, a night, like a side job on the weekends and in the evenings uh, as a dating coach. And that was about 10, over 10 years ago when that was happening. And then over the last several years, I've, for, for other journeys that I've gone through in my personal life, have had to dive deep into clinical uh, psychology and psychotherapy and have been getting training in that and incorporating it into my coaching. So discovering that our deeper issues are what, we're, what we were actually supposed to be, what we should have done instead of papering over our, uh, our lack of meeting our own emotional needs and so on by doing this other behavior went deeper into the psychotherapeutic material and uh, been doing that for several years. So um, that's eventually how I became a full-time coach. Um, and the, about three years in being a professor, it came down to, uh, do I want to continue to teach 20 to 30 undergrads, Buddhist epistemology and metaphysics and uh, having them forget everything we covered once the exam was over? Or do I want to make a real difference in people's lives, uh, which I was doing as a coach, even back then as a dating coach and seeing uh, the transformation in their personal lives and their happiness and fulfillment and, and uh, the women that they make happy and, and uh, just seeing a bigger impact in the world as a result of doing that kind of work. So it was an easy call at that point. It was a little bit nerve wracking because I'd never gone out on my own like that and having to get my own visa for Singapore and all that. 
but it all worked out really well in the end. So here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Going back to those, those days when you were a prof, I mean, did your colleagues and students know that you were leading this kind of, uh, I don't know if double life that might be a bit dramatic, but uh, that you were doing. Oh yeah. So my, let's see, the first month I was in Singapore, I was, as pickup artists are wont to do, infiltrating the social hierarchy. And uh, one of the men that were really cool, uh, there was a, a woman who was a journalist for one of the national papers. And when she found out I was a dating coach, she wanted to break the story. So I, I was sort of naive in the sense of like, I had never really held down a, another job, like a real job. <laughs> so who reads work contracts and things like that, right? <laughs> the sign, give me the money. So, uh, I didn't know that there would be any kind of conflict at all. And I was very strong in my frame. Right? That's what pickup artists are supposed to be like, strong in your own frame. So I could not be shamed about anything I was doing because, well, I wasn't, I had no shame around them. <laughs> I was just being honest and uh, forthright. Anyway, so she broke the story. It came out on the front page of the national paper the second week of the school term. And there was a three-page spread in the middle of the life section. It was in the middle of the paper, which is the life section. It was a three-page thing on me. And that became a big deal. And uh, I was there. The chair brought me in to speak to the dean. And uh, the dean and provost, they, were, they, took it, they thought it was really cool. Uh, but they're like, you know, this is causing some PR that we don't want to have to deal with. You know, we have to manage it. Like, I totally get it. I had no idea that this would be such a big deal. <laughs> and uh, the chair really didn't like it. So the chair gave me a hard time undermining me. In my second year, she actually pulled in. Uh, for questioning into her office uh, individually, one one by one, my third year students. And I had found out like halfway through this inquisition <clears throat> from my students, like, Professor Tian, do you know that this is happening? I'm like, what? This is complete. So I, that was when I, I decided I'm out. <clears throat> I'm quitting. It's bullshit. This academy bullshit. Um, so that's that was sort of the draw, uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And then uh, I started planning the escape in a formal way. There's a line uh, by Camus I, I think about all the time where he talks about um, the fact that we have to make peace with our unlived lives. And I mean, do you ever look back and wonder like what would have happened if you'd, you know, chosen to, you know, stayed in the, the quote unquote safe academic path and not become an entrepreneur? And like, do you ever look back and yeah, just, I, I, not necessarily thinking it'd be better, just wondering what it'd be like? I don't have to look back because I still have many friends there. Right. So I just look, I just, when I meet them, I'm like, I would be, and some of them, they're struggling. Some of them have tenure and they did all right. Uh, actually, some of them, well, in terms of professional uh, goals, they all did well. And some of them did really well. Um, but, uh, you know, the university is in disarray. Like the higher education's yeah. gone to crap. And um, plenty of universities that, were in business for over 100 years, uh, private ones are now shutter, shutting down or they're massively downsizing, cutting entire departments or merging departments, especially in the humanities. And they're just trying to turn themselves into job farms, right? Which is, I guess, as a private institution, is what people are paying them to do. Get me a job at the end of this thing. Um, and my, my idealist professor friends, almost all of them are idealists, bridal against this, that they have to produce students who can make a living. And these students aren't good academics. They don't care about the critical reading, and the original sources and all this. I'm like, dude, this is a money-making venture, you know? And they don't understand how the world works uh, in terms of the world capitalist world and what their role is there. Uh, so I already know what it would have been like if I had stayed down that path. Um, hmm. 
So, yeah. <laughs> and it's the same, like, whenever you do major transformations personally and you meet your old friends back before, you kind of get that as a mirror of what it was like if you'd stayed on that path. Like, my friends in high school, all still, many of them still in the same hometown their whole lives in their 40s now <clears throat> with kids. And then they write to me saying, whoa, Dave, you're traveling all over the world. You're having this great life, man. How are you doing this? Like, I, I'm so envious. I'm like, that's great. I can show you how to do it if you want. And even with kids, and you can still do it. But and then they're stuck in this rut, you know. So they're going to go through the typical midlife crisis, I think. I just had my, I had my midlife crises many many times, much earlier. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to get to that. But actually, just just very briefly for more background. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're Taiwanese, but you grew up mostly in Canada. Is that right? Yes. So around the age of four or five, like four and a half, I moved to uh, Kansas City, Missouri with my family. And my parents were doing grad school there. And then we moved up to New York for a while and then eventually to Toronto, where I think by the time I was nine, I think it was Toronto. And then um, stayed there pretty much until I went to McGill University for undergrad uh, and then finished my undergrad at Toronto. And then I moved uh, to Michigan. Got the little flag thing there. Uh, around 25 when I did my PhD. And just, just out so, of curiosity, I mean, what, what drew you to sort of build a life in Asia? Was it simply your academic pursuits and then things followed from that? But have you ever considered going oh, back to North America? Good question. Yeah, good question. Uh, so... I was sent back as a good Taiwanese, a Canadian kid, every other summer to spend at least two months with the relatives and learn Chinese. And then one, my first year at McGill, I was pre-med that first semester, just uh, biology, chemistry, physics. And then I had two elect oh, calculus, and I had one elective. The one elective I chose was Intro to East Asian Studies. And that was by far the most enjoyable course. So by the second term, partly because I was doing so badly in the pre-bed courses, uh, I switched um, over to the Bachelor of Arts and uh, from the Bachelor of, Bachelor of Science and chose uh, East Asian, broadly speaking, like religion, history, East Asian, and loved uh, I had to do the language. So a big part of that was learning, doing four years of modern Chinese. And uh, they're still, I'm still getting sent back. I, like my parents would fly me back to Taiwan, even in undergrad, to do a summer in Taiwan. And I, I liked it. I didn't love it then, but I liked it a lot. And it wasn't until I moved to Beijing in uh, the beginning of my dissertation phase, and I had to do a, an immersion year of language, that that was the year I fell in love with, really fell in love with Chinese culture. Like I, I loved the ancient Chinese culture, uh, anything from Qing Dynasty earlier. But uh, modern China was, to me, sort of like gray and drab and all this. But then when I finally moved there and really immersed myself, it was so full of color. And so, so there's so many adventures around every corner for me. And whenever I went back to North America, it's like nothing has changed. The same set of stores on the same streets since I was like 15 are still there. Of course, there are changes, but in the broad uh, stroke of things like didn't seem like things were changing whereas when i was living in beijing 2000 when i first moved there in 2004 or 5 when i left for literally six weeks to go back and do some stuff at michigan and come back in that six-week period a new grocery store had opened up three blocks from our, our apartment and then had closed and a new one had opened up so like <laughs> there's so like that's just one three block uh stretch and uh it was just amazing how much how rapidly things were changing and how 
Um, it was still very much plugged into the traditional or ancient culture. So that whole uh, richness was there. But then, of course, all of the modern changes were happening as well. So that was exciting. So, yeah, lots of stuff going on. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't go back. Also, the yeah. food was just so much better for me. Just like so many more flavors. You know, I grew up with Chinese food. So it's comfort. It's home food for me. It's like comfort food food. Um, so having all the different varieties of in China, of all the, the regional uh, variation of Sichuan and, and Dongbei and Xibei and, and then uh, Shanghai, and you know, it's like in Guangzhou, of course, having all of those different cuisines available with full restaurants just dedicated to those. And when you go to Japan, there's just like one restaurant for one type of dish, like just a ramen restaurant or just tonkatsu or whatever. It's amazing. And um, I discovered Southeast Asia by accident because I, uh, I got that position at Singapore. I didn't know much about that Southeast Asia to my embarrassments at the time. <laughs> and once I discovered Southeast Asia, it would open up this whole other, even richer in many ways, gateway to culture. Because in a very short, a very small um, space, relatively, like you could fly end to end in four or five hours. In that space is, I don't know, over a dozen major ethnic groups with their own languages and culture and food. And this is amazing. So um, I still, there's still so much for me to learn about that area. I've since moved out back to East Asia and am fascinated constantly by what's happening in Taiwan and Hong Kong, and especially right now while we're filming this uh, with the protests there and um, what's happening. So it's, it's like you're living in history. Yeah. Uh, whereas when I'm in Toronto, I feel very uh, safe and secure, but kind of bored you know, suburban life kind of thing. And I don't I can, know, that's just me personally. So. No, I can relate to just about everything you said. And uh, even though my family background is an Asian, I mean, you know, I moved to India for a year when I was like eight, 19, I guess. And just ever oh, since wow. then, I've been spending a lot of time in this part of the world. And a couple of things, the one thing I just always think of is, and this is going to sound condescending perhaps, but I just feel like it's just in general, everything's more interesting. Like you say, the food and the history and the culture and the streets and the colors and the people. Like, I just feel like, not necessarily the people, but just the general environment I find a lot more interesting. The other thing too, and it reminds me of when I, when I lived in Colombia, there's a real sense among young people that things are happening here and our lives are gonna be better than our parents' lives, for better or worse. Mm. Um, and that can lead to, you know, that can have some, some downsides in some ways. You lose some of the culture with progress and modernization, but there's a sense of optimism that I find that, that I don't find when I go back to the West, unfortunately. So we could spend a whole podcast on that, but I want to get back to pickup artistry because, you know, I'm sure a lot of your audience, well, I'm sure all of your audience knows generally what that's about. Um, but maybe you can help paint a picture of like what your life was like during those years. What did it mean to you to identify as a pickup artist and, and what you learned? Oh, wow. Yeah. Great question. I haven't been asked that for a while. Uh, Okay, well, how much time do you want to devote to this? I don't have a prepared answer for this one. So, <laughs> just just in general, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, well, I'm just curious in general, like, what were those years like for you? What were your weekends like? What were your goals? What were you, what were you striving for? Oh, okay. So, what was a lifestyle like? Uh, it was a lot, well, so as an academic, I was not trained or uh, encouraged to be social or to go to bars or clubs or um, I was encouraged to stay home and study as I was since I was a young child. So learning that you could get that, that it was actually a skill that you could get better at, like 
the, the public speaking or um, networking. <laughs> that's, an, that's an actual skill, being uh, good at conversations in these environments and learning the social uh, norms there and navigating them well. So I approached it like anything else that I learned. I got all the books I could find, got all the video courses and everything I could find, and went through the spare time I had. And then I would go out and apply it. So normally that would be Friday, Saturday night, and that would extend to Thursdays and Wednesdays after a couple of years, uh, after maybe just one year. So I was out um, generally Wednesday, Friday, Saturday night at bars and meeting my friends. Uh, you know, the first six months or so, you don't really have any friends there. So you have to make them. And that process, I didn't understand any of that, by the way. I was just doing, back then pickup was really socially weird. Uh, it was learning some kind of opening line, opening gambit, and then being able to tr transition out of that into some way of holding her attention and making her laugh. Like it was all scripted horror were you, stuff. Were you peacocking, David? I tried to. <laughs> uh, well, actually, according to the pickup artist, I was. But all of that was just awful. So I developed just through trial and error and learning about uh, just observing the natural leaders in that environment were like and what they were doing in their mindsets and documenting those for myself. Anthropologically, learning from the inside what it was like, I changed it all. So I was a lot more natural, a lot smoother, just making friends as the first priority um, and just having fun as the number one priority, learning how to have fun, enjoying the music, getting conversant even on the music because I was a jazz and classical guy, as a, most academics are. So just learning Kanye and all that's like new for me. It was pretty embarrassing looking back at it, but I, I didn't listen to any of the top, any, like, top 100 songs. So then just getting into the pop culture, attacking it like a cultural anthropologist of, of imagine I were to study bar and culture and club life to write a dissertation on it as a sociologist. That's what I was doing. And I had to get the basic research down and then, and then assimilate, like get into the, the local culture and infiltrate uh, the, the elite circles there. So then it was uh, of course, for my own purposes, like dating. So if, connecting with women that I found attractive. And then um, usually Sunday was the hot day. That's when all the, the texting would go out. I was doing this in days before smartphones. So we literally had a texting device. That was what the cell phone was. You made calls and you sent text messages. And um, so anyway, just Sunday was text day. And then getting feelers for who was interested. And then I'd hook up a date Sunday. And then usually from that, people would say, oh, I'm busy Sunday, but can you do want to meet during the week? And then I'd hook up Monday, Tuesday, and maybe Thursday. So every night of the week, I was out of the house, very different from my academic years, uh, academic focus, I mean. And um, it was great. It was a lot of fun. I learned how to be social. I learned how to speak with all different kinds of people. And I learned how to be uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. I learned about fashion, uh, made many, many fashion mistakes <laughs> along the way, and met very colorful people that I would never have met if I'd stayed in academia, for sure. And um, it was fun. So a good two or three years of just solid fun. The first year was constant embarrassment and anxiety. But once I figured it out, it was a lot of fun. But it's just like any guy. I mean, it's coming in my early 30s. So I think any guy in college in early 20s, you should live it up. Like you don't want to live a life of regret looking back like you didn't party enough. Or just get out of your system. Go out and have some fun and learn what it's like when young people get together and have fun. I think there's... There's a lot to be said for that and get it, you know, get that period out. Um, but you got to, you want to hopefully grow from it because it's sort of like you get to eat, you know, you get to go to a buffet that's really nice and have whatever you want for a while. 
And then um, just like, actually, I lived in hotel hotels for four and a half years as a ambassador uh, level, and it was great. And then eventually I realized uh, what else is, like I asked myself, what, what's next? What else is there? I still feel kind of empty and lonely and, and uh, it, going back to the dating, the pickup period, not the hotels. Uh, like, okay, what else is there? And um, getting into a relationship and realizing I had no skills or knowledge about relationships back then. They do not transfer at all. Like pick up into, like lots of people think they do and they try to make it happen. Um, and I was right at the cutting edge of that as far as pickup guys getting into relationships, but it was just all awful. And I had to learn the hard way. And that's when I dove into uh, the psychotherapy to understand what was actually happening in the underlying issues. So anyway, that's hopefully a, a glimpse into the life of a pickup artist. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to come back to the point you make, you're making about, um, not all of the skills you're learning during pickup translating into sustaining, you know, a passionate long-term relationship. Cause I think that's absolutely crucial. And I agree that there's a misconception that a lot of this stuff, you know, applies and a lot of it just doesn't, I think. Um, but you mentioned, you know, you, and I've been watching more of your videos lately and you've, you've talked about some really dark Thanks. times you had through those pickup years and some sort of, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you've had some midlife crises, plural. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what that was like for you. Like, what, you know, what was it like to go through that and what you learned? Well, I guess, uh, I guess, David, what I'm curious mm -hmm. about is because I've, I've, I've followed your work for, for a while now and I've seen a transition. There's been some real changes, you know, thematically and the way you speak about certain things. And it even seems to me the way you see your, your past and stuff. So I guess I'm curious if there's some kind of like bottom uh, to, so to speak, of, you know, your quote unquote pickup years. You know, did you have some low points that really made you reconsider where you're Yeah, so I, I would consider those not the, so the, there's one bottom that transitioned into my interest in psychotherapy that, at that point in my time, in my life, I was trying to make a relationship work. So I didn't consider that the pickup phase. I was still a dating coach and was coaching guys who wanted to do that, but I wasn't. Um, and a lot of the anxiety was happening for pickup at the beginning when you're still learning it. It's important to that and um, realize that that's part of what makes you who you are now, all of these dark experiences, or maybe like things that, these phases in your life, right? Um, and I don't regret those phases. Uh, maybe I wish that I could have gotten through them faster, <laughs> but uh, generally yeah, I had a good time. So there was a period where, like I was saying, I tried to transfer, uh, well, everything I knew about social psychology. Well, I thought it was just psychology in general, but it's really just certain types of social psych and evo psych, evolutionary psych, that would then transfer into sustaining a relationship. But in pickup, there were, there were different goals trying to get sexual attraction and lead to uh, a physical intimacy is different from love, <laughs> you know, and any deep connection. So if you're thinking about frame, like the frame of the conversation and controlling the frame, if you're thinking about push, pull, cocky, if you're thinking of any things to think about, you're already sabotaging the relationship. If you're thinking about power, who has the power in this relationship? It's already game over for you. You're in the wrong game. You know, you're not in the relationship game. You're in this other thing, and it, it was. It's. It took a long time to figure that out, and I'm still learning every week about that, uh, experientially and theoretically. So, um, yeah. So that period, that transition. Maybe this is what you're trying to get to. Um, I was in this relationship that had become quite well. Actually, from the beginning, it was toxic. I was seeing multiple women. I just chose one of the women I wanted to to be in a relationship with because actually the, re the practical reason was I was trying to start this new business. That was the period when I was leaving the university 
and starting my own thing. And I really didn't want to get kicked out of the country. I wanted to make sure we had enough capital so I could apply for my own visa and sponsor myself, the whole deal, right? And I moved to a smaller, cheaper apartment, started taking the bus everywhere in the subway uh, instead of tag cabs. And I was a little nervous. The first time starting my own business, going out on my own. And I didn't know what to expect. Uh, so um, I didn't want to spend my weekends clubbing. I wanted to spend it building, learning copywriting and building a web page and, you know, the whole deal. So um, I just I thought, okay, I, I, I'll pick one of the women I was dating. That was not a good option. Uh, that was not a good idea. And then I just applied what I knew to that. And it was a lot of power games. And I've made multiple videos on what I've learned from those experiences of that failed relationship. And I got to the point where um, I was suicidal uh, and I was standing at the, the edge of a 57 story building trying to work up the courage to jump. Just getting to the edge was a challenge, by the way. They purposely make it hard for you to jump. Like I was looking, I have to clear a six foot because if I don't jump far enough, I'm going to just go to the next floor down because they tear the damn thing. I didn't realize that when I get up until I got up there that there's a garden underneath me. Like a good uh, academic a doing your research, right? That's right. I'm standing there <laughs> in my head like, okay, I got to get enough running room here. And then I'm like tears. Yeah, I'm trying to. And then I send out my farewell emails uh, and, and messages wow. to my friends and family. And that, that, that's what triggered it. Like, like one of my best friends was, like called me right away. Like, where are you? I, well, he did, I didn't answer. And then uh, eventually when I was like, I'm not sure I can make this jump. <laughs> he called us maybe the umpteenth time and I picked up. He's like, where are you? And I mumbled something and he ran and pulled me off the, the edge. Um, and so then he was on suicide watch for like two, three days. Uh, and then we hung out like pretty much every day for the next two weeks just because he kept finding where the heck I was. And um, it was it was actually really nice. It was sort of a call for help, call for attention that I didn't unconsciously. So I had some friends who were all over the world just calling me and saying, dude, we need to talk and this sort of thing. And it was great in that sense, but I didn't alleviate my feelings of, of um, meaninglessness in life and all that. And that came about because I was a narcissist. I had become a compensatory narcissist. I might've been a narcissist for much longer, um, but I definitely, once I learned pickup, I was really good at narcissistic behavior and was able to flip that to get short-term gain, uh, women, dating opportunities, moving up the social ladder. But that actually uh, exacerbated my psychological, uh, what would you call them, uh, weaknesses or psychological issues, the underlying issues. And um, a narcissist will hook up with another narcissist, but they'll be in different pairings. So uh, because I was a compensatory narcissist, the term I use, which is a narcissist who's compensating for the fact that he didn't know how to be a good narcissist. So I was a narcissist, but I was a codependent, covert one. Then I learned through pickup the skills to become an overt one. So I was now projecting all this overt narcissistic energy, and that attracts the pure or predatory narcissists who've been narcissists since way before, 11, 12 years old or whatever. And these are a lot of them uh, for this type of women who were, had lots of male attention when they were younger and learned how to manipulate that and got off on it. And we're also in some ways verbally or emotionally, physically abused. And that pairing came along together to create that power dynamic. Anyway, there's a lot of literature on narcissism. And I was the, the other side of that coin. So any kind of pairing along these lines will lead to tons of 
drama that will just escalate. And that's exactly what happens. It can escalate quite violently and dangerously. And uh, I was on the losing end. So that's where I went. And I didn't know how to analyze any of that. I had no idea what was actually happening. I just felt like life was meaningless. Uh, uh, the, there's a, a guy, a good friend of mine who runs datingskillsreview.com who, who reached out and said, Dave, I, I heard what happened where, where you're at and you should um, get in touch with our other friend, Mark. And um, this friend happened to be Mark Manson and that everyone now knows. <laughs> this is many, many years ago. So I reached out to Mark and we hopped on the phone uh, several times and, and he was really good at just pointing out the literature that I should look at. So he was, I think, one of the first people that got my attention on like, there's this clinical psychology stuff. You should actually pay attention to it now. I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, holy shit, yeah, this is explaining exactly what I was going through. And um, yeah, that started me down, just hunting down all the, the, the best resources, people. I'm still doing lots of um, therapy training uh, myself and getting the certifications and things like that. So yeah, that's Interesting. darkness yeah. to light. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's quite a story, um, and I'm, I'm sure we could spend an hour just on this topic alone. So take this question however you want. But I'm, I'm really curious to know about maybe some of the paradigm shifts that you had to go through transitioning from being a good pickup artist to being a good boyfriend and now a good husband. Like, what are some of the, the mental shifts you had to make, or different habits you had to sort of incorporate into your life? Or you yeah, know? so the the pickup phase was fun, but I don't recommend it at all to guys because um, you have to unlearn everything. None of the skills that you'll learn and pick up will make for a good relationship. It will make for a good social guy. So you'll be able to take many things away from it to apply to career, professional life, especially in any kind of negotiation. Um, anytime you're dealing with other dudes, <laughs> other guys, especially of course in the same settings in which you were trained for it, bars, clubs, that nightlife, that kind of thing. Um, very, I mean, directly transferable in those cases. Um, there are some things that you want to soften and take a new mindset towards, but the skill set is still there. But when it comes to relationships, all of the PUA material, and as well as nowadays, it's the red pill and uh, more bitter and talk, even more toxic than, than pickup in many ways, is just designed to hide vulnerability. It's designed to protect your downside. You're saying all these things and doing these things to protect yourself from getting hurt. And like the average needy guy will say, this is not what you're supposed to do. Every guy does that. And I'm here to say, yeah, maybe 80% of the guys do that, but that doesn't make it right. Just like it might be that 80% of people in this city are obese. doesn't mean obesity is right. Right. Like, you know, it's not good for you um, to hide uh, or to protect your emotions um, in that way. What you need to do is get to the point to be secure enough and that, that you don't need to do that. And then secondly, to be overflowing with the positive emotions of love or connection that you, you don't need it to come back from others. So it just flows out of you because it's who you are. Getting in touch with those, you know, the, your pure self, your true self, your inner child parts that are holding all of this love and not being afraid of, of just letting it out, to be okay with having that go forth and not needing it to come back not needing it at that kind of neurotic level of needy love, but in that being able to be in that energy of unconditional love. So it's just who you are. This is who I am. I'm going to be good. Even if you're nasty, that doesn't make it so that I'm going to become nasty. You know, I'm just going to be good. I'm, I won't spend any time with you. I'll stay, you know, just, I won't invest any time or effort in you maybe, uh, cause you're uh, an evil or a bad person, 
Um, but that's not going to mean that I'm going to become evil or bad in return. So I can manipulate you and get some kind of revenge, which is what, you know, some bitter versions of, of that kind of ethos of red pill or um, the bitter pickup artist would do um, getting revenge on those slut girls or something like that. Um, it's all bad, bad all the way. So I, I prefer to take a guy who's sort of a blank slate. He hasn't gone through the pickup route. He doesn't know much about it. And he just has a good heart and he wants to get into a relationship with a woman who has a good heart. And he's got issues, of course, as we all do. And he's going to now pay attention to, attention to those issues and work on that to make himself more secure, more integrated um, with, all, with all of his parts, getting more self-leadership, as IFS uh, therapy would say. And then being able to just put himself out there more um, and leading uh, with vulnerability. And not, so when normal dudes hear that, they think, oh, you pour out your guts. No, no that's your neediness talking. <laughs> so you can't lead with vulnerability if you're still uh, very much looking for others to meet your own needs. So you, you work on your own inner issues of uh, meeting your own needs. And then, and then at that point, you, once you get to a critical mass on that, then you can, you can get out there and, and just be open and um, vulnerable. Uh, that is, here, are, here's, here is who I am. And um, this is how I want to be in the world. These are my values. These are my principles. Here's who I am. Boom. There you go. I'm expressing them. You know, I'm not hiding them. I'm expressing them. And I'm open to see what happens with this other human being that I'm conversing with, whether they'll meet me there or whether they're going to get guarded. And, and maybe I want to give them more rope uh, you know, and spend some more time to see whether they let their guard down. But if they start coming at me with any kind of aggressive energy of narcissism or ego or whatever, then you know, probably won't be interested uh, in continuing further, but I'm not hurt, you know, because I put it out there. They don't appreciate it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because I'm not waiting for it. to. Come. I don't need it to come back because I can meet my own needs. I can give love to myself, connection to myself and so on. That work takes a while and it's never really done. Right. all the time. So um, that's what I would say as far as like going from pickup guy to being good in a relationship, you need to be able to meet your own needs so that you have two full individuals to come together, not two people who are trying to get others to meet their needs and meet my damn needs or I won't meet yours and this whole escalating tension and battle as a result of that. But like two full individuals who are complete on their own who can then come together. And then even then, now you have to learn how to have that in connection with each other, right? Then it's a whole other... Um, can of worms or, you know, a whole other subfield of relationship counseling. Yeah. You have a, a great talk. I think it's, I'm not sure if it's one of your free mini courses or if it's a long video on, um, on YouTube, it's like over an hour long about how to keep a relationship passionate. I think it's one of your oh, uh, yeah. free courses. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a massive, massive topic, but as a guy who's married now and kind of, you know, really trying to figure a lot of this stuff out in real time, what is your kind of, What's a quick version of that? <laughs> That's totally unfair question, but what are some what are some principles you've learned about returning that passion? Because the the myth that that makes me crazy is people think that it's just automatically that you know you fall in love once and you can never you know sort of come back to those feelings ever again. That sex has to fall off a cliff after you get involved with someone. All these myths that are still you know out there quite a bit. Um, what are you learning as far as that stuff goes? Right. Well, there's. Yeah, this is a big question, right? So I have done a free masterclass on this. So if you're watching or listening, davidtmpsg.com on there will be an opt-in form. You get access to the free masterclass. And I've also done a four-part video series on the secrets to a successful relationship. And that's, a, that's even deeper. So there are these quick tips 
and surface level mm, quick things you can do. And some of these are actually quite deep as well, like presence for one. But then there's an even deeper level that no one will be able to escape. And once you can go through that process of undoing your unresolved issues, which will come to a fore in the relationship, in the love relationship, in an intimate relationship, because it's very easy for us to hide those or to repress those, which is what actually we did to get on in life. And then they'll come out in an intimate relationship. Uh, and if you don't tackle those, no matter what other things you do on the surface, like date nights or whatever, um, no mm. matter, if you don't, it doesn't matter what you do in, in the techniques. If the underlying issues are not resolved or not grow, healing and growing from them, um, then the, the relationship is, is doomed. But if you can grow and heal from those un, unresolved, underlying, often childhood uh, issues, then it will flow very naturally. Then you won't need to schedule, like to remind yourself to schedule a date night. It'll just happen because you'll want to do it and you'll be looking forward to it. And it's like the thing you look forward to the most. Like, and meeting your wife's needs will be the thing that will give you the most joy, right? Um, rather than trying to force it to happen. But it's such a deep concept for the average dude. Uh, it's, could you mention the three, what your yeah. three P's? What is it? Is it uh, passion equals polarity plus presence? Is that it? Oh, yes. This is yeah. in the, I really dig the that idea. Through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the free master class for how to make a relationship passionate. And I also went into that for the Rock Solid Relationships course. So we have a whole 40-something-hour uh, course on, on relationships for men uh, to, to succeed in their relationships. Um, yeah, so presence. So polarity is a big thing. Uh, so polarity and then presence. Let's just stick with those two, polarity and presence. Because one thing I just recently got out of uh, researching red pill, which was painful to research because there was so much uh, anger there. And uh, one of the things that they're missing is they really, really want, it's a very immature masculine energy that wants to rest. They, they want to get into a relationship so that they don't have to do anything. Like guaranteed sex for the rest of my life without having to do anything. Yeah. And, you know, their ideal is uh, a woman who will meet all their needs for them and so without having to do anything. They just sit back and have all their needs met. Like, come home, wife's barefoot, pregnant, you know, whatever. You know, like, I think, I think make you, me food. Uh, you've, you've cited this as well in your videos, but the, I think the first chapter of uh, David Data is the way the superior man is stop hoping for completion of anything in life. Yes. And it's absolutely. like these guys are, are trying to find that, right? Like one <laughs> exact day. Exact opposite. Done. Yeah. 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 So, um, that's so if you get the so once you get into a relationship it's not you should keep growing so that's something that if you think if you just keep hoping for a completion you're never going to have a successful anything career life relationship nothing and you know so same in the relationship so polarity has to continue to grow that means you got to still grow your masculine energy so i have a whole course for that that's very affordable made it as affordable as we could uh, but it requires some inner work. You're going to have to go through these guided meditations and all that. And it's called core. And it helps you build your, it gives you basically workouts for your mind and heart um, through meditation uh, to, to help you build that masculine energy so that you can continue to build the polarity. So the polarity in the relationship will, the more masculine energy you can bring, the more feminine energy will, it will call out of her. And then she will be able to relax and, and trust in you and to lean into you and it'll be a, that will create the passion right there. The polarity, if when it's depolarized, then there's no passion. 
when the man and the wife are just friends, you know, or, you know, brother, sister relationship, where they just kind of hang out. Um, and that often is just because uh, the guys stop physically you know, pushing him, going to his edge, challenging himself, um, you know, and, and, and then she has to pick up the slack and she becomes more masculine as a result. And then they just become buddies. I'm a, that happens a lot. Uh, I'm a Tantra guy and I've talked about Tantra and stuff in the podcast. So I, mm. I hope my listeners are familiar with polarity at this point. Um, mm. And honestly, we could talk about this all day. I want to be respectful of your time. I'll just direct people. I mean, you've got a ton of free stuff on your YouTube channel. I mean, hundreds, I think, of videos. Uh, and your free masterclasses yeah. are really good as well. Strongly encourage people to Thanks. check that stuff out because it's, it's, yeah, you're putting really, really valuable stuff out there. And we don't have much time Thanks. left. But I, you mentioned the red pill. Um, which is a rabbit hole I've been going down recently, just just learning about these people. And God, man, I don't know about you, but I just I see a group of the most insecure human beings on the planet. I mean, really. Oh it's yeah. Just, it's it's painful. I mean, these guys are yeah. terrified of women. <laughs> I mean, like, and yeah. Anyway, so the red pill. Oh, just just really really briefly. How would you describe it? It's a, it's an underground collection of guys trying to figure out dating, figure out women, and they've taken that extremely tired, overused matrix analogy of I've taken the red pill, I can see how it really <laughs> is. And the truth is, yes, there there are some aspects to it that are, you know, not entirely off about you know women responding to certain cues and building attraction and stuff. It's not like it's all bogus, but so much of it is really really toxic. I get guys reaching out to me all the time. I'm sure you do too who are sort of flirting with that red pill ideology. In a nutshell, what would you tell guys that are, that are kind of tempted to go down that path? And again, you've recorded a couple of really great videos on this topic, uh, which I'll link to. But in a nutshell, what would you tell these guys? Yeah. Uh, well, first, depends on how deep down that hole they've gone. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get guys in my groups who are solid red pill guys, and they related to talks I've done on, there's one on the reality of women, where I, I point out that, uh, they're not all princesses who want ice cream and unicorns and stuff. And, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, they're sluts and whatever. I'm like, I didn't say that either. Right. And then, so, uh, it's interesting how, so I got, I did the red pill work because of requests from guys for, for it. So I would, I would try to lead with the feeling, the predominant feeling that I get when I'm reading it is compassion. Cause you know, I, it's coming out of being hurt, mm. right? Like, and I was there. That's what led me to be suicidal. So I totally understand it. And in a way, it comforts you because somebody else feels your pain and you're not alone. So that's fine. You got to come out of that because it's full of fear and insecurity. Now, I've pointed that out many times and guys get all defensive. Like, yeah, but of course, wouldn't you be afraid and insecure if a woman ripped your head off? And all? Um, we start with that, but we want to grow out of it. And if you lead with fear and insecurity, which is what all of these tactics and principles that, come, that are coming out of Red Pill, like the how-tos out of Red Pill, are all based in, rooted in uh, insecurity and, and the fear of loss, that um, she could hurt him. So he's going to spin plates. That's one of their dictums, spinning plates. You want to see multiple women and have that going around. Because basically, you want to spread your neediness around multiple women instead of just putting it all in one woman, and then you can't handle that. That's too scary, and she could you know, make you feel bad. So you can't deal with the sadness and loneliness so, and the hurt, uh, so you're going to have to do all this other mental gymnastics and stuff like that, uh, psychological gymnastics. So deal with the fear and insecurity first. Mm. That's the root problem. Mm. And as you begin to address the fear and insecurity underlying your relationships with women, 
then you'll discover the deeper issues. So that's just the gateway to the underlying issues. So that I would say that uh, at least be able to see because these red pill guys they front like they're tough. Oh, it, it, like like I've never seen before. I mean, every one of them oh, is right. Donald Trump on Twitter, and it's oh, like, like yeah, there's so much bravado. In oh, it's insane. Like, it's but anybody who's mature can see right through it. Like it's yeah. like a little kid like puffing his chest out. Like why you you don't need to do that. Like we like you the way you. And the um, the leaders are like that. So I want to point out there's so much fear and insecurity. Just to to highlight to the guys who are on the edge of it, dabbling with it, like. Hopefully you can start to see the little boy who's screaming right now and pretending to be tough because it's all of these tactics are driven out of being scared. Like they're scared for their lives when it comes to women. They're scared of getting hurt again like that other bitch did to them. And because of that, they do all these other things. And hopefully they'll see that so they'll disrespect it enough to look in the other direction of looking inwards actually to the fear and insecurity that is driving them to those decisions and strategies that are making what, what, what makes those strategies actually appealing. And they'll be able to do some of that inner work uh, and start um, encountering the parts of them that are holding that fear and insecurity and begin to heal them. That's perfect. Yeah, that's very well put. And I would, I would totally agree. Yeah. Ask yourself, where's this need to have, you know, where's my hunger for the red pill coming from, really? Where's my hunger for this ideology coming from? Because I think you're, you're bang on there. Mm. Switching topics, <laughs> thankfully, completely. Um, recent, not to recent, actually, I don't know how recently, uh, in the somewhat recent past, you got married. So congratulations for that. I think that's fantastic. Thanks. Um, and I'm always curious to talk to guys about this. I was just on the phone actually earlier this week with uh, Dr. Robert Glover. I asked him the same question. How did you make that decision? I'm always fascinated how people make that decision. Like what went into it and how did you know that you were ready to make that commitment? Oh, right. Well, part of it was the timing was part of it was practical. So I think in the West uh, or like liberal or cultures, whatever, you live together and kids together without that many repercussions. Um, like Richard Branson didn't get married until his, one of his kids was seven years old and the kid was getting asked in school, like, why are your parents not married or something like that? So they got married for the kids and not have to deal with this. So, you know, there, it's not like I'm saying everyone has to get married or something. Uh, but we were basically in that position where um, I was flying around a lot. Uh, I was living the remote digital nomad life. And I was doing it a lot more off, like I was moving around a lot more often than no, most, most nomads do. It seems like most nomads will do three months or something in one country. But I was, I, for work reasons, I was in and out every two to three weeks of a different country. And my normal route was um, Bangkok uh, to Bali with Singapore in the middle, because I got Singapore as a free layover on Singapore Airlines. So it was like a free trip. And I do my business in Singapore. I get at three days, down and loved it, back up to Bangkok for two weeks, and then redo that whole thing. And then uh, so three months a year, I'll be in the US or Europe. And it's hard to sustain a relationship like that. Now, she can follow you, but unless she has some assurances that this is going somewhere, for her to quit her job, you know, and try to do something remote uh, and basically start a new career, she has to, my wife, my uh, wife, fiance at the time had a job, right? Um, we wanted to, but we wanted to be together. So I wanted to give her that assurance. And I kind of, in a way, like the man can do it for the woman. Like, I know uh, from her past that she's sort of anxious about guys just like leaving her or whatever, um, and from her father and all that. So like, I wanted to give her that reassurance. And that's a big part of creating chemistry and passion 
what women need from men is the presence, and that requires vulnerability, but they also need reassurance and attention. And if I'm not able to reassure her, she's never going to be secure in that relationship. And eventually, over time, it will become toxic for her. Uh, and for the relationship, so it would become toxic for me. So it got to a point where like, yeah, um, I don't really want to just keep this itinerant life, like relationship going either. Like when I'm in Singapore, pop in, and she'll come out to Bangkok like uh, for a long weekend or something like that. But I want it to be like, we're going to build a life together. And once, once that happened, then we looked into the practicalities, like, or I began it without telling her about the marriage possibility, but like, huh, what if we get a visa, you know, like, I could go to Singapore. Hmm, it's, it's kind of a rip off. I don't really like it there as much, but I could, you know, I could. But then eventually we discovered Taiwan. I'm a Taiwanese citizen from birth. And uh, so we checked it out and she really liked it here. And uh, actually before even that, I proposed. And um, a big part of that was like, I feel like it's time. And it was time for me to stop moving from hotel to hotel, uh, despite the amazing service I got at La Meridian, Bangkok, the best hotel in the world. Uh, <laughs> you know, they let me leave six huge luggages there for years. Wow. Um, and as a free storage, it was great. And, and knew all the staff by name. And the general manager come, came by every time to greet me. It was great. But um, I wanted to have uh, roots in the place. I wanted to have a studio where I could just turn the lights on and press record. I wanted to have bookshelves <laughs> and um, some, like, some uh, steadiness in my life. And I had, I had burned off that phase of my life where I was just traveling, moving all the time and being very minimalist. And it was the same in my heart, in my relationship. Like it's time, it's time to have kids. It's time to put down roots. It's time to, um, double down on what's working. This is really great. I wanted to do it, go deeper. And if we continue to do this logistically, it's not going to work out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's how I did it. Like something that she wanted. And I knew that it gave me a lot of joy to give that to her, um, that reassurance. And, uh, like, it's not like I needed the reassurance. <laughs> I knew it was all, you know, I'm in it, but uh, I wanted to prove to her that you can relax. And I also wanted to, to show my family that this is serious. It's not just a girlfriend that David Scott, but like, it's serious. So better respect it, you know, move over, make some room. You know, we're, we're now a family unit, so I'm not going to drop everything just to fly back from some reunion. If it doesn't work out for us, we're a family now. So there are all, all these other things. And then, of course, the government. <laughs> the governments need to respect it so that you can get a freaking visa and bring her over or she can bring you over or whatever it is. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it went. Well, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank yeah. you. I'm always, I always enjoy hearing these stories, how it works out. Um, before I let you go, so davidtnphd.com, is that the, the best place people can yeah, find you? Yeah, davidtnphd.com, and then just go through the, the menu. You can find our free masterclass opt-in there, so uh, just enter your email and you'll get access. Great, and before I let you go, I'm going to do my cheesy thing at the end of my interviews where I ask, I'm going to ask you to complete these sentences with one or two words, the first things that come to mind. Okay. The quality I am most drawn to in the opposite sex is? Oh, sexiness. Sexiness. I would most like to be remembered as? Good. Love is? Oh, every, everything. Love is... Love okay. is what makes life worth living. Well put. Well put. Well, this is great. Um, thanks a lot for this, David. This is great. Thank you, man. A lot of fun. Thanks for the questions, too. Excellent. 
hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love, and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.